Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast. You'll hear how 46% of Canadians are $200 or less away from financial trouble. Also, Canada must prepare for the U.S. immigration policy changes and what that will mean to this country. We spoke with Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson on Beauties and the Beast about the election so far and uh, major benefits there would be if Eastern refineries used more Canadian oil. You'll hear that story. And Daryl Bricker, the president of Ipsos, on an empty planet and the big shift in Canada's demographics, which affect our politics. Okay, so there's a very serious issue that's going on in this country, and it has to do with money. It has to do with the disposable money Canadians have. It has to do with the shortage of finances of disposable income that Canadians have. Now, in recent days, we became aware that 24% of Albertans are carrying more than $40,000 of non-mortgage debt, and 50% are living paycheck to paycheck. The national numbers concerning financial distress are hardly better. In polling by Ipsos for MNP Limited earlier this year, it's revealed again 46% of Canadians are less than $200 away from not being able to pay their debts. And that should be a huge concern, and it should be part of this election campaign because one of the key issues that Canadians have identified is affordability. But somehow, I don't hear the politicians talking about it as much as they should. The leaders. Why could that be? Let me think. Lowering taxes? Grant Basian joins us. He's the president and CEO of MNP Limited, and he joins us from British Columbia. What do you do at MNP, uh, Grant? What's, what's the company involved in? Yeah, uh, MNP is a, a national accounting and advisory firm, MNP LTD, which I oversee specifically deals with uh, insolvency, both uh, corporate and consumer in nature, and uh, I oversee it. Uh, we're the largest insolvency firm in the country by number of trustees from coast to coast, from St. John's, Newfoundland, all the way to Victoria, B.C. So it's a, a handful to operate, but uh, something I think we do a good job at and definitely have a, a, a you know, sense of what's going on in the country as a result. Yeah, and it, there appears to be a significant need for the kind of information and the kind of work you do. So you didn't just uh, hire Ipsos just on a lark to uh, to conduct this this poll and find out this information. You knew there was something significantly wrong. Yeah, we, we see a lot of people coming in with uh, stress in their lives, right? You know, apart from maybe a death in the family or a divorce or a marital situation that pops up, I think, uh, insolvency and, and financial distress uh, is very traumatic for a lot of people. Right. And uh, we're seeing definitely a lot more people coming in, uh, actually, I hate to say it, with suicidal tendencies. Um, they come to a wit's end. They feel there's no way out. Uh, there's stigmas associated with not paying debts off and going bankrupt. And, yeah, so we, we can conduct a quarterly Ipsos uh, survey with Ipsos, and uh, we now have created this index on, on MFP consumer debt and trying to get a sense of what's going on in the country in terms of how people are feeling. Yeah, yeah, about their debt situation, and it's not very good. No, and it, nobody wants to hear that someone is has uh, suicidal thoughts, but it's not the first time that uh, 
trouble with money or challenges with finances have pushed people into at least having those thoughts. And this is where this is where the issue is so critically important. You know, we, we've headlined um, one number, and that's the 46% of Canadians who are $200 or less away from not being able to pay their bills. That's a huge number of people on the cusp of defaulting on paying their bills. And the ripples, or I don't know, tidal wave across the country would have to be huge as well. That's one number, but there are other numbers that are that are sort of rolling right along with that number. And one of them that I saw was 31% of people don't earn enough money to cover bills and debt payments. So you've got 46% saying they're $200 or less away from not being able to pay their bills, and 31% don't earn enough money to cover bills and debt payments. Speak to that, please. Yeah, those are interesting numbers, aren't they? They're kind of unbelievable in a way. They are. Um, but if so, this is a you know a credible institution, and this is the survey results are coming out with. Uh, I, I think what's going on is people are, are having a difficult time paying off their debts in full. That's the problem. They're able to make make their minimum debt. You know, the minimum debt payments on the credit cards, as an example. Um, but that's the problem is they're not tackling the bigger issue, which is the principal on their lines of credit and their and their credit card debt. And so they're lending from one card to another, and they're just not getting ahead, and they're, they find themselves getting actually further and further and, and deeper and deeper in the, in, a, in the hole. You know, what it comes down to is maybe cost of living in certain regions, obviously B.C., uh, specifically Vancouver, Toronto, the cost of living is high just because housing is so high. Um, people spend beyond their means, I think, at times. People are trying to keep up with the Joneses. combination of factors. There's emergent needs that pop up. Certain people don't save for rainy days. People are losing their jobs. They're not getting as many hours as they used to have. Uh, you know, I always hear about these uh, statistics coming out from the federal government saying that so many jobs are created in a particular year or a particular month. But I wonder if they're full-time gainful employment. I, I tend to think that they're probably not. I think a lot of it's part-time work. With that, people don't get the benefits they normally would get with a full-time job. And they're just they're scraping. They're, like you said, I heard you say earlier, they're you know, paycheck to paycheck. That's yeah. what we're seeing. Um, it's a difficult situation for a lot of people, and you know the only thing I think that's really holding it together right now is the low interest rates. Uh, if interest rates go up, I think it'll, it'll be a worse situation for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, it's uh, it's disturbing. I had an email overnight from uh, uh, a listener in Ontario who wrote that it was also it's also the taxes that they pay uh, that are onerous, and uh, so the money that you get to keep from the actual income that you earn is not that significant. And, uh, and I said, we're trying, to, we're trying to make do with, what's, with what the government leaves us. And some people would say that's an excuse. Other people would say, you're absolutely correct. When Tax Freedom Day is after the, uh, the sixth month of the year, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult reality. So th- th- consider that a bit of an editorial comment, if you will. But are people robbing from Peter to pay Paul? In other words, I can pay half of this bill this month, so but I have to take money from over here, uh, something else I was supposed to pay, but I can't pay them both, so I'll, I'll try to juggle as much as I can, paying some of what I owe. How much of that is going on? Oh, definitely. Yeah, you see that a lot. When people come in, you know, they don't have one credit card, they'll have a stack full of them. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're using one credit card to pay off, not even necessarily pay off, but to pay them the minimum amounts on another credit card. And unfortunately, credit cards 
seem to be a little too easy to get for some, and uh, that's what they're doing. Yeah, it's, it, that's what ends up in a problem. Maybe it just snowballs with them, right? You know, so a lot of people, before they come to see someone like us, or if they come to see someone like us, where they don't really need to go quite bankrupt yet, they'll try and get a consolidation loan, right? So try and make those multiple payments into one and have an overall less interest effect. Uh, that's a critical factor. But yeah, you're bang on. That's exactly what they're doing. What would happen in Canada if the central bank interest were to climb a point or more and all consumer interest rates were to climb correspondingly? <laughs> I think we'd have a disaster. I don't know what the tipping point is. I don't know if it's half a point or full point. You know, I don't know what that magic number is. Um, but you would have a lot more people coming to see, you know, licensed insolvency trustees to figure out their issues and to figure out ways out because they just won't be able to manage their debt. It's uh, it's a scary proposition. You know, I think it's not just within Canada. I think it's a worldwide thing, but we're definitely seeing it here, and that's what I mentioned earlier. I think it's the, the interest rates are the glue that's keeping everything together, and I think that's why the federal government's so reluctant to increase interest rates because I think they realize it's gonna, they're going to have a big problem. It's the highest amount of consumer debt we've ever seen in recorded history of Canada, Upwards of a dollar seventy worth of debt for every dollar earned. That's a that's a big number, and it varies by province. I think BC is over two dollars. Um, so I think the federal government is very very reluctant to raise interest rates just because of the down you know the the downside of, of people basically becoming insolvent and, and likely having to stop a bankruptcy or do consumer proposals. It'd be disastrous. Yeah, and we we don't have the kind of uh, economic backstop that we had. In 2007, 2008, I'm talking about now government sources, government monies, and we don't have that uh, any longer. If uh, if we had uh, another two, God forbid, at another 2008 develop, we'd be in. Uh, we'd be in. Well, you tell me what kind of situation we'd be in. <laughs> we'd be in a disaster. Like I said, a disaster situation. I think uh, there wouldn't be enough trustees, licensed and solvent trustees in the country to help the people. Uh, you know, I hope it doesn't come to that. I'm quite often, quite often asked to look into the crystal ball and 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 uh, determine what would happen in these certain stag- circumstances. And the word that just keeps on popping into my mind would be a disaster. There'd be so many families that hard hit and uh, not be able to pay their mortgage uh, payments uh, because they have variable interest mortgages, uh, not be able to make their credit card payments, and not be able to pay off their lines of credit, their car loans. You know, you have people with repossessed homes and lost cars. It, it would. It would uh, it really hamper people's lifestyles and uh, probably the economy as well. Wow. Um, I, I don't even know how you get a handle on this because so many people are now in a situation where they can't even make their minimum payments across the board and they're not earning enough money to uh, to make their payments. Grant, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, I'd like to talk to you the next time you have a uh, an Ipsos poll in the next quarter and find out what the numbers look like if, you, if you're willing to come back. Sure, by all means. Thanks for having me. All right. Good talking to you. Thank you. Grant Basia from MNP Limited, accounting firm and insolvency trustees. Dramatic changes have occurred uh, to U.S. refugee and immigration policy. Canada must prepare itself for the repercussions, according to a New University of Calgary School of Public Policy report. Immigration expert Robert Falconer has released actually two reports examining the U.S. retreat from their refugee resettlement and the U.S. asylum ban also. And uh, Mr. Falconer joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network.
Thank you for taking the time, Mr. Faulkner. Uh, Canada, so Canada's going to experience a surge, I gather, uh, in refugee claimants because of U.S. policy changes on immigration and refugees. And you write dramatic changes in the United States. So how dramatic are the U.S.? Let me start with this. How dramatic are the U.S. changes? Uh, they actually mark a, a quite dramatic shift in, in U.S. Uh, refugee and asylum policy. Um, I'll start with the Refugee Resettlement Program, which is the, one, the program where we purposely relocate people abroad from UN refugee camps and other places around the world to places like Canada and the United States. And this is a, a long-standing program that really began in the U.S. under Ronald Reagan, continued out throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s. And uh, we've seen a drop from about 95,000 in 2016 to last year it was 23,000, and then the coming year it's going to be about 18,000. So. A, a very large retreat from that program. And again, it, it was one that received Republican and Democratic support. Um, on the U.S. asylum policy, also quite a change here. Up until now, um, anybody, regardless of how they got to the United States, could claim asylum. Uh, we did have an agreement with the United States, whereby people, if somebody crossed from Canada to the U.S., they would send them back to us. And if they crossed from the U.S. into Canada, we would send them back to them. Um, but that itself might be under under challenge, which might result in more claims here in Canada. Okay, so uh, let me move on to another point, then I'm going to come back to what you just said. Canada did lead the world in refugee resettlement last year, correct? That's correct, in 2018, for the, the first time in about 40 years. Okay, so, uh, okay. How much of a surge over the last year should we perhaps expect in the coming year because of the changes in U.S. policy? It's hard to say. Um, right now, if we're talking about uh, asylum seekers surging in Canada, um, that's predicated on what happens with the current court challenge. Right now, there's a, there's a court working its way through the federal court here in Canada saying that our current agreement with the United States, um, our asylum processing responsibility agreement, called the Safe Third Country Agreement, uh, that's working its way through it. And with current U.S. policy changes, they might have a little bit more weight behind their argument. If that ends up going through and our agreement with the United States ends up getting suspended, we might see fewer border crossings, but more asylum claims in Canada. And right now, the Auditor General is forecasting a backlog of about 150,000 pending claims. Right now, we're about 80,000 pending claims. I could easily see that under current conditions, jumping up to about 200,000. Now, you're, you're talking about uh, claims that are before the federal court right now. Yes, that's, good. that's right. correct. So if the federal court agrees with the uh, with the uh, advocacy groups, then everything changes. That's correct. Yeah, we what we will see again. This is it's kind of a um, it's a bit of a trade off. We we will see a, a drop likely in border crossings. So the reason why people currently cross the border in places like Roxham Road is because right. they want to avoid the restriction on this agreement. If that agreement's overturned, we're probably going to see people kind of going directly to border crossings. But we will likely see more asylum claims, um, which has implications with regards to our the, the fiscal situation of the provinces, um, could impact uh, Canadian confidence in our overall immigration system, uh, and causes its own set of headaches for the federal government. Well, let me ask you to uh, to expand a little bit on when you say on, and, and you just touched on it now, but when you say Canada has to prepare itself now, or should prepare itself now, what are we preparing ourselves for? Major stresses on our social programs, national health care, housing, and so on? Those are two aspects for sure. Um, the provinces are, are responsible for asylum claimant, uh, uh, social assistance, K-12 education, right, emergency right. housing, legal aid. 
those are one aspect. I think the best way we can prepare ourselves is um, to hire a lot more people who are processing these cases. This might sound maybe somewhat intuitive, but actually the faster we can process these cases, the less claims we're likely to get. And the reason for that is if somebody has a, a very good reason for fleeing their country, meaning let's say they are persecuted, they're, they're a Christian from Iraq, for example, and they have a lot of evidence to support this, they're not going to be um, deterred by a fast asylum system. If they know they're going to get an answer here in Canada in three months, they, they'll, they'll make that claim anyways. But if, let's say, they're, they're from a middle-class um, group from a country, let's say, I'll use the example of Nigeria, which is where a lot of the claims are coming from. If they're from a middle-class group there, not, no evidence of persecution. They might be tempted to make that claim in Canada if they know they have at least five or six years here where they can access social assistance, health care, and other programs. They're not going to try to do that if, we can, if they know they're going to get a negative answer in about three months. Mm-hmm. So I think we can prepare ourselves by, by really taking care of this backlog of claims that's been piling up. But there's always also the option to appeal uh, a removal order, and some of those have in the past gone on for years and years and years. Absolutely, absolutely. And I actually, uh, I kind of go back to the first point, is that the um, the longer a person has in Canada before they get an answer, the, the greater the likelihood that appeal will succeed, because there's a stream called humanitarian compassionate um, grounds, where if we, you know, we might recognize that somebody isn't a legitimate refugee, but if they've been here for five or six years, they have friends, family, maybe even a kid in Canada, we might allow them to stay regardless. Um, if we are able to chew through that, that those claims in a lot faster manner, and I'll say back in 2015, we were getting through claims in about three or four months. Um, if we get through that uh, process a lot faster, the likelihood of, of an appeal on a humanitarian compassionate ground succeeding is, is a lot lower, simply because there is this quick turnaround time. Well, it's, uh, it's something that uh, we, we, we obviously have to pay close attention to. And I thank you very much for joining us on the air, Mr. Falconer. Thank you. Happy to be on. Robert Falconer from the University of Calgary. So changes in the United States in their, um, in their reality with policy for immigrants and refugee claimants are going to uh, impact this country. And then, of course, there's also something that... Uh, is part of the equation, ultimately, is the UN Compact on Migration. Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale, and uh, Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson, former seatmate to the Prime Minister. So, beauties, I want to get some something out of you in the 10 minutes that we have. Uh, I, I promised you more, but I lied. Not intentionally, <laughs> it's just the way it happened. But <laughs> you ought to run for <laughs> off. Bait and switch. <laughs> bait and switch. Um, so here we are. We're a, day away, <laughs> we're a day away from the big debate. Six party leaders and five moderators. And we've absorbed enough to, to know where we, most of us, I think, stand with two weeks to go in the campaign. So let's start with Linda. What, what are you thinking? Well, okay, first of all, the brown face thing, and I've been listening, uh, Roy, uh, you know, SNC-Lavalin, that is still a huge, huge issue for Canadians. That's, that's corruption. But not, anyway, but not to Mr. Trudeau. I want to turn to something else. This really upsets me. Only 3.5% of Canadians are worried about our debt and deficits in this country, and you just said it with the, the Global Reporter. I mean, um, you talk about, I think, $800 billion. Well, add in the provinces, and we're up to $1.8 trillion in debt in this country. Add in consumer debt, and I've talked this before, $1.6 trillion, and nobody is worried about it, yet 
credit agency, credit rating agencies are warning the liberals when they started. They they've overspent by three hundred and thirty billion um, since they've come to power, and now with all these promises, we don't even know where this is going. Hey, Linda, we're going to be speaking with Grant Bazian later on in the show. Yes. He's the president and CEO of MNP Limited, um, and uh, they did uh, they hired Ipsos to do a poll of Canadians and found that they're the group that found out that 46% of Canadians say they're within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. 46% not within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. And uh, and we're going to get more information from Mr. Bayesian about that particular poll as we go through. Catherine, there's not only what Linda's talked about, but there's, there's so many other aspects of this financial matter. We have the political parties promising billions and billions and billions of dollars when they're running billions and billions of dollars in deficits, $700 billion national debt, and an international recession possibly looming, there's no wiggle room. No, it's, there's no, it's, it's less than no wiggle room. And it, it dismays me in part because people, a lot of people seem to think that's somehow okay, and this is a non-issue. There's a lot of talk about deficits don't mean anything. Yeah, right. Well, deficits mean lots. But the problem is, until it comes and smacks you, you know, upside the head, people sort of think the future will be fine. What gets me, though, too, when I think about this election, is I have never, ever seen a political party like the Liberals currently it work so hard to try to fix the election. You know, we've had them bribing the media, well, a lot of the media, present company accepted of course Roy we've had we've had them um, you know really working hard to censor people on social media I've experienced it myself I've had I've suddenly lost several hundred followers on Twitter and I know darn well it's bogus it's you know it's it's the Twitter people thinking you're a conservative therefore you are evil we're gonna smack you Um, and this debate tomorrow's debate we have you know all of these liberal women moderating this debate I mean, if I were Andrew Shear, boy, I'd, I'd probably have a flat jacket on for this. If any other party did this, people would be outraged. And you know what, Canadians? We should be outraged, even if it is the Liberals under uh, Teflon Trudeau doing it, because it's cooking, cooking things in their favor in a very illicit, illegitimate way. Now, I have to say this, and I want to say this, and I'm not saying it just because we are corporate cousins. I think that Donna Friesen did one heck of a job with her interview with Justin Trudeau. We played back some clips, and when he said, "We all, it's a, it's a teaching, uh, something like it's a yeah. teaching lesson moment for all of us. We have to do this. We have to do that." And Donna said, "What do you mean we? That was a this good is interview. you. I what do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean I we? Absolutely. Again, it, you know, would our media not horribly insulted? There's times they ask him a question and he just stares off into space I know. and says this nothing. You can't get away with that. You it's cannot outrageous. you cannot let him get away with it. Ma- Michelle, why is he getting away with it? What what is it about what is it about Justin Trudeau that uh, somehow you know his personality that allows him to move forward like this because most people because if they were found in this kind of situation if they were found out they'd be so embarrassed and so uh, I, I hope ashamed they wouldn't be able to just stare into the cameras and Provide some non-answer and move on. But, you know, he's Justin Trudeau, and he buys into his own clippings that he is the second coming, and, you Uh, know... Of of Pierre. Yeah, yeah, and (laughs) I'm here to save Canada. And you know what? 
you know, I hate to draw the uh, parallel to Trump, but it's like he can now lie and just figures it's okay, it's normal. Is that Michelle, because... He's a lot like Trump. Well, wait a minute. Is that, is that because... Is Justin Trudeau, Linda, did you think Justin Trudeau feels uh, feels assured that he can do what he wants to do, say what he wants to say, yeah. provide non-answers, and he's not going to be pushed for very long? That's well, right. It's entitlement, and we've seen it all along during his reign. Um, you know, and, and you're right, Teflon, nothing seems to stick. Um, but whose fault you know, is that? Right? And good for that global reporter. Put, put his feet on the fire, for sure. Well, she did. Great job. <laughs> what about the worry, the, what, what the worry ex- though, get, getting beyond personality stuff or whatever, is what you were alluding to and Linda was commenting on earlier in the conversation. We're cruising for a recession now in Canada, and many, many developed countries around the world are. This it, totally irresponsible government who's been financially responsible, you're going to talk to the guy later in your show, Roy, about how you know Canadians are hanging on a very thin financial thread right now. Uh, I, when I think of who do I want uh, stick-handling Canada through the next recession, the last person would be Trudeau. What are you expecting tomorrow night, Michelle? Um, I don't think it's going to be quite as bombastic, except between Scheer and Trudeau, because that's where the government lies. Um, the Greens, they're, you know, they could be spoilers, but I think, honestly, that Jagmeet's going to be on left field. And Bernier, no one's going to care. But he will certainly raise the um, the rev limiter. Oh yeah, no, he's he, you know, he's a libertarian, and well, it's also his only very, opportunity. He's very anti, you know, um, immigration. But his, it's it's also his only, uh, Catherine. It's really Bernier's only opportunity to make. Uh, a, a really uh, s- strong impression on on viewers, and he's not going to waste that. Yeah, no, no, I think you're absolutely right. But but he is a fringe candidate. He is a fringe candidate, yeah. no question. Uh, but you know, Michelle, I, I I actually think Singh has come. You know, the numbers show that Singh has actually come up in the polls and yeah. is taking taking votes from liberals. I think so. And I mean, he's well, he's quite an unknown think- quantity, but uh, to you know, to most Canadians. But I think he's actually acquitted himself pretty well so far. We'll see. We'll see in tomorrow's debate. But he did pretty well in the French debate. He did. He, and, uh, well, and he won't. Be, and he he, he sa- won't become prime minister. No, no, he won't no, be. no definitely. But he not. sounds. But you know, I think he surprised a lot of people and very positively. Beauties, I have to go. Okay. Sorry, but thank you. Nice talking. To and we'll do it again before the twenty-first of October. Okay. Okay. So I tweeted out the other day that I had something interesting to share with you on uh, on Sunday's broadcast, and I tweeted very interesting. And a lot of people took sort of ran off with it, and um, it took on a life of its own. But what I wanted to talk to you about is what we're going to talk about now. And this is very interesting because, and I was looking at a story that. Uh, it actually ran on the 25th of January, 2018. Eastern refineries could save millions by buying more Canadian oil. Siri reports. And Siri is the Canadian Energy Research Institute. And I want you to listen to her a little bit here, and then we'll talk to the uh, CEO of Siri, Mr. Alan uh, Fogwell. Just have a listen to this. 
Refineries in Central and Atlantic Canada could save money on oil costs and produce fewer global greenhouse gas emissions if they bought more Canadian crude oil, according to a study by the Canadian Energy Research Institute. So, no big surprise so far. Listen to the numbers. The study finds that substituting Canadian oil wherever possible, using space on existing pipelines, rail cars, and ocean tankers, would result in a 47% reduction in foreign oil imports into eastern Canada. And right now, we're importing anywhere from 700,000 to 850,000 barrels a day, depending on who you talk to. So 47% reduction uh, in foreign oil imports into eastern Canada, savoring refineries $210 million per year, and the equivalent of more than 2 million tons of carbon dioxide, or about 5.7%. It adds that expanding the transportation system through a new pipeline equal to Trans-Canada Corp's cancelled energy east would allow the eight refineries in Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland and Labrador to replace 57% of imported oil at a savings of $317 million per year while still cutting GHGs by 2 million tons. I think, quote, I think there's an opportunity for the energy sector to do more work together east to west to benefit Canada as a whole, said Sherry CEO Alan Fogwell. So I don't hear this being talked about in our federal election campaign. I wish it were being talked about, but I think, and I don't expect you to comment on this, Mr. Fogg. Well, thank you for joining us, but I think it, I think it, does, it doesn't benefit some politicians to talk about some of the things that, that, that I've just read that you found out. Mr. Fogg, well, thank you for taking the time. Oh, you're most welcome. So let's look at this then. Explain to us in layman's term, terminology what we're talking about here. That, and if I understand it correctly, if we substitute f- uh, our oil for foreign oil, which is coming into this country in, 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 in big numbers every day, we're helping the economy, we're helping people, and we're helping as far as climate change is concerned. Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the main challenge, if we're looking at something like that, is how do you uh, properly get credit for that on the international stage? That's one of the issues we've been facing in different international agreements for the last, uh, you know, 25 years. If you're able to uh, do something like this domestically, do you get credit for it as a uh, uh, contributing to uh, international targets? So that's that's really the challenge. Um, yeah, and how the way I'm looking at it, it is, and I looked at the story, and I'm glad you're talking to us, is I see a way here for Canada and Canadians to help Canadians, um, and and I don't really uh, I don't really care whether the international community likes what we're doing or not. If we do this, this is ultimately to the benefit of of this country and Canadians. And we just found out how much how tight money is. We know jobs are tight. We know 24% of Albertans are living with uh, $40,000 at least in uh, non-mortgage debt. This is very serious business, and this would help this country. But the st- is the stumbling block then? What's the? Uh, how does it look internationally? How how is it going to be received? Well, uh, I would say that's one of them. I mean, but that can be overcome um, if you look at some of the concerns that people have been expressing about uh, uh, oil from Western Canada moving east. 
there's a, a confusion around what we're talking about here, which is light oil, uh-huh. because Eastern and Central Canadian refineries can't uh, refine the heavy oil, which is the bitumen, which is what a lot of people have some concern about. Right. And that was actually what was the intention for the energy's pipeline was to was to move light oil to Eastern refineries. So, yes, uh, I mean, going back to your original question, yes, it would uh, create additional uh, demand, uh, additional jobs for uh, Western Canadian uh, producers and and workers, and it would be a, a net uh, financial benefit to uh, a number of the refineries in, in Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland. So it's a win-win if we do it. Well, yes. I mean, it is a win-win if we do it from a financial point of view. It's also a win-win if we do it from an environmental point of view, with that one exception that I mentioned, which is the, the challenge of getting uh, uh, the, the impact associated with our replacing those foreign imports accredited to Canada. And here's why. I mean, if we are adding, uh, if we're providing more oil to uh, Eastern and Central Canadian refineries, Canadian emissions are going to go up. But net emissions globally, which is what everyone should be concerned about, will go down. So if we're only looking at our own target, our own emissions, then it would be counter to trying to achieve that target. But if we took into account the benefits that this creates internationally, it's a net win overall. Yeah, and, and moving the uh, the oil from Saudi Arabia, for example, which has become our number two importer after the United States, uh, the benefits, um, is the cost of moving oil from the Middle East in such large quantities every day, I mean, that's, uh, that's a, there's a climate price to be paid there. Well, yeah, but I mean, we did include all those impacts in that uh, in that analysis. Yeah. And as you quoted at the beginning, uh, there is uh, a reduction over over two million tons uh, in carbon emissions, and and part of that's related to the uh, transportation of the oil, and part of it's related to the production. So, I mean, if if we were to do this, if we were to take the the, the our Canadian oil and substitute it. For the foreign oil, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. I mean, one of the one of the questions that still lingers in my mind about this is, if you look at it, even with the existing infrastructure, not having to build anything more, uh, it would make sense from a financial point of view for uh, some of the refineries in Central and Eastern Canada to move to Canadian oil already, because there is capacity there where they can move to that. The probably the probably the the issue that they would run up against is that is they have uh, existing contracts, existing relationships. The uh, specifications of the oil itself may be slightly different, and of course, with these refineries, they're so complex. You have to be very clear and very specific about what you're getting, and so they would have to make some changes in order to uh, accept more Canadian oil. But if you're looking at saving somewhere between two and three hundred million a year in feedstock costs, I'm not sure why they're not looking at it. Yeah, and how much does it cost us to bring uh, to import foreign oil over a billion dollars a year easily? 
Well, I mean, uh, when you look at the, the costs of bringing in import oil, you have to offset that with the cost of uh, our export uh, of, uh, of light crude as well. So, But the only, really the only place we on, export is to the United States. Well, true. So we could, be uh, be, we could actually be buying our own oil back from the Americans. Uh, no, not in that case. No, what, what's happening is most of the oil uh, going into Canada from the United States is from the, the Midwest uh, in the Balkan region. Okay. Um, and uh, that's very um, uh, light crude, and it's uh, very much uh, um, a good product that comes into Ontario. And it would be very difficult from an economic point of view to shake much of that loose. Okay, so now we have, we have the reality of um, people in this country economically struggling. We have, the, uh, have our own oil. Uh, it could be used by the refineries, as you've said to us, in, in uh, central and eastern Canada. Maybe some adjustments have to be made to the refineries, but it could, it could be used. And a 47% yep. reduction, we're not even talking about a 100% reduction. Uh, your study shows a 47% reduction in foreign oil imports into eastern Canada, saving the refineries $210 million per year and the equivalent of more than 2 million tons of carbon dioxide, or That's about 5.7%. Right. That's right. So I, I'm a simple guy. Talking about. I, 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 I never did very well in math. <laughs> but even I can figure this out. Yep. I, I mean, it just, it just makes absolute sense. And when I saw the report, I said, I have to talk to... Uh, I have to talk to you, and I appreciate you coming on and sharing the information with us and and uh, and, and working it through for us. Thank you so much, Mr. Fogwell. Appreciate, oh, appreciate talking welcome. to you. Bye. All the best. Alan Fogwell, CEO of SERI, Canadian Energy Research Institute. I've spoken with Daryl Bricker for many, many years, and usually we talk about polling. And we've been talking to Daryl, and we've been talking about uh, his colleagues at Ipsos Public Affairs about the polling they're doing and a lot of it for global news on this federal election. And I'm going to sneak in a polling question before you know that day, Daryl. Absolutely. I you, would expect you, nothing less. <laughs> I'm going to sneak in a polling question, but I want to talk to you about two of your books. Now, your books are remarkable. And, and they're books that every Canadian should read because they're, they affect us and they're written in a way that we can understand, and, and, and it may surprise us, but boy, do we get information. Let me just read a couple of lines about your book, The Big Shift. Um, uh, the Big Shift, The Seismic Change in Canadian Politics, Business, and Culture, and What It Means for Our Future. Sometimes, you know, the, uh, the glasses and the font don't get along. The political media and business elites of Toronto and Montreal ran this country for almost its entire history. But in the last years, they have lost their power, and most of them still do not realize it's gone. The Laurentian Consensus, a name John Ibbotson coined for the dusty liberal elite, has been replaced by a new powerful coalition based in the West and supported by immigrant voters in Ontario. So what happened? So, Daryl, please share with us the premise of the book, and then what's happened. Okay, well, the premise of the book is that, you know, uh, countries change as people change. 
And what's been happening to the Canadian population, particularly since the end of the Second World War, is exactly what the title is, a big shift. And the big shift is the weight of population moving from the east to the west of this country. So in 2011, it was the first year in Canadian history in which there were more people living west of the Ontario-Manitoba border than there were east, living east of the Ontario-Quebec border. So with the weight of the population moving in that direction, economic power is moving in that direction, and along with population power and economic power comes political power. So what was created, and this is what we argued after the 2011 election, was a new way to win. Uh, the old way was you win the province of Quebec and you win the uh, enough seats in Ontario and you and you form a government. Now, Stephen Harper showed in 2011 that you really didn't even need to do that. If you had Western Canada and you had particularly the suburbs of the city of Toronto, you could form a majority with only having five seats in the province of Quebec, as he did in 2011. So what we did was try to write a, a bit of a wake-up call to Canadians about how all of this was changing. What I find interesting as well, and particularly interesting, is you point out in the book that uh, recent immigrants have all embraced, or many of them have embraced, conservative ideas and conservative values, and that has had a major impact on the political landscape in this country. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that's interesting. It's not so much that they've embraced conservative uh, views, but that they uh, didn't behave as immigrants were expected to behave. So that Stephen Harper actually, between 2004, 2006, 2008, until 2011, actually increased his support, uh, the conservative support among immigrants, was something that most people didn't predict. I mean, pundits didn't predict, because as we know, immigrants always vote for the Liberal Party. But in those four elections, they didn't. Uh, now, 2015 is a bit of a, uh, a blip to all of this, but our, our argument was that, you know, as these demographic changes take place, the, the odds get better for conservatives to win. And again, you know, we're back in 2019, and, and the, the fight is over the suburban ridings around the city of Toronto, mostly uh, inhabited by new immigrants. Yeah. Um, Toronto, Montreal, and, and Ottawa, I guess, were the were the, 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 the power broker, the, the center of the universe in Canada for, for so many decades, no longer. Well, and that's the case. And, you know, it's funny, I, I saw my co-author, John Ibbotson, on uh, CBC's uh, Power Panel this morning, and it was, it was really interesting to listen to basically a Laurentian panel uh, argue with John. And John's a, you know, a very gracious guy, and I'm sure you've interviewed him. Doesn't really get into arguments, but uh, uh, these people were saying, you know, conservatives aren't behaving like conservatives are supposed to behave. And their version of conservatives is the old progressive conservatives of Brian Mulroney. It's like, no, no, that's the Laurentian elite version of the conservatives. You know, basically the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, you know, wearing blue sweaters while the Liberals were the Montreal Canadiens wearing red sweaters. And what's happened is the conservatives are now playing a different sport. So they're behaving according to the uh, the changes in the population and the changes in the country. And the Laurentian elite just sit there and shake their heads, and they can't understand why the country, and particularly conservatives, aren't behaving as they should behave. So am I missing something here? Isn't, wouldn't the words demographic and, 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 and cultural uh, realities come into play? Well, one would think that they should, but it, you know, when you live in downtown Ottawa, nothing's really changed for you. I suppose not. You know, I suppose and, you know, not. Your world hasn't changed. I mean, the Laurentian consensus, which the Laurentian elite is the, uh, uh, the architects of, the Laurentian consensus is really this idea that Canada is a bilingual nation, you know, we're a, a plucky middle power, uh, that, you know, we're opposed to the United States on all sorts of things, that, you know, we're an incredibly progressive country. That's their view of, of Canada. And, and it was a view that 
not only dominated in the uh, in in the Liberal Party, but in the big L Liberal Party was, uh, I guess, the the, the best uh, representation of it. But so was the old Progressive Conservative Party. They they pretty much cleaved to that uh, that view of the country as well. So what's happened is conservatives today are different from those old progressive conservatives. And you've got um, people, as I saw in this power panel, saying, well, you know, they should be pro-environment because, you know, everybody's pro-environment. And why isn't Andrew Scheer marching in a, and, you know, in environmental marches? It's because it doesn't do any different thing for him as a conservative. His conservatives might think differently about these issues, mm-hmm. and they can't quite buy into that. It's, it's not even that they can't buy into it. It's cognitive dissonance. They, they, they can't see how that could po- be possible in their version of Canada. I, I just wonder if they do a lot of praying at night. Uh, well, the they're, they're particular, particularly secular groups, so I don't think so. <laughs> uh, so the final question on, on the big shift, because we're going to talk about Empty Planet after the break. Uh, where does Quebec, and how does Quebec factor into the big shift? Well, Quebec factors into the big shift in the sense that uh, Quebec used to be the, the you know, the, the center point for the whole prevention consensus. And, you know, Canadian politics was always about uh, reconciling Quebec's nationalist sentiments with the rest of the country. That was the obsession of the Laurentian elite in particular, and you know, as represented in our national government. Now that the national experiment has really, or the nationalist uh, view of, uh, of Quebec has really kind of died down, and they're moving on uh, questions of the economy as much as everybody else is, that old conversation about how do we keep Quebec in Canada is really not the conversation anymore. In fact, we're probably moving more to a question of how do we keep Saskatchewan and Alberta in Canada? Yeah. That's a that's a very relevant question. I mean, I, I, the the premier of Saskatchewan has said on this program more than once, "Do we have a country?" Darrell, hold on. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk more with the CEO and uh, president of Ipsos Public Affairs, great polling firm, and we'll talk to um, Darrell about his book, Empty Planet: The Shock of Global Population Decline. The big worry seems to be about global population explosion. The public. Concern. I, I saw something terribly disturbing. Um, AOC had one of her, I guess it was one of her town hall meetings. A lot of people have seen this video where a woman jumped up and she was just absolutely uh, unusual. Uh, I don't think, I mean, I couldn't understand what she was, what she was thinking, but she was talking about we only have a few months left, I guess, for the planet. And then she started talking about we have to we have to eat the babies. She kept saying that over and over, and they didn't pull the microwave from her, and they didn't. Anyway, that's all over uh, social media. But the reality is, according to Empty Planet, the shock of global population decline by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson is that the the world is actually the population of the globe is um, getting smaller, and in some parts of the world, it's already happening. Don't go away. Back with Daryl Bricker, CEO, President of uh, Ipsos Public Affairs. And let's talk about uh, uh, Daryl's book with uh, co-written with John Ibbotson, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. Daryl, all I hear about, and I've been and, and been inundated with it, particularly over the last weeks, is this huge concern about the massive population and the unstoppable uh, birth rate and 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 p- advice that don't have any more children or prince harry saying i've had two kids and that's it uh, and you should all consider having fewer children 
you, uh, in the book, Empty Planet, you're looking at a different uh, reality, looking at a, pop- a planet with fewer people, and in some parts of the, the world it's already happening. What's the back, what's the back, st- or I guess what's the most fundamental story here? Yeah, I'm not looking at a different reality. I'm looking at reality. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's no well, such you know, thing as my, my comment, uh, when, <laughs> I think I even tweeted this when, uh, when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle decided that uh, they were going to announce they were only going to have two kids. Well, yeah, but that's ahead of the U.K. Um, uh, average, which is 1.8, right? So the, the problem that we have on this one is that uh, uh, there's a, a real, um, uh, I call them the M&Ms, the millenarian Malthusians. You know, millenarians, the world is about to end in the Malthusians, which is we're going we're gonna to expand the population so much that we won't be able to feed ourselves. In fact, if you go back to Paul Ehrlich's book, 1968, called The Population Bomb, you and I should be fighting over the last crust of bread. Well, that, that never happened. And the reason is because the population didn't grow the way that he expected, and the world didn't react in the way that he expected. But you still have people, including the UN, persisting in this this position that the global birth rate is out of control. So UN saying that we're going to get to 11.2 billion people by the year 2100. Uh, what we argue in the book is probably what's going to happen is we're going to get to about eight and a half billion people, and then it's going to start to decline, and we don't know how far it's going to come down. And most of the developed world today has below replacement rate population. In other words, uh, they don't have enough people being born to actually replace the population that they currently have. So when the argument comes up that the global population is out of control, the numbers show a different story. You know, I've been thinking about that, and I, I, I keep seeing these projections, as you say, from the United Nations and others, that there's going to be this massive population boom, and they have different numbers of billions of dollars that they, they project. And then I think, as you've just said, but in so many countries, we're, we constantly are told that we're not the birth rate isn't sufficiently um, uh, large to meet the to even keep the population where it is, and 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 that that's but that's just set aside. That's not considered, I, I guess, by those who believe that we're going to have that 11 billion population on the planet. So uh, how does this how does this uh, occur? And you can't have that kind of um, you can't have a significant drop in population. I mean, you can't have a significant climb in population without, uh, without real um, uh, circumstances that accompany it. You probably can't have a significant drop in in population without uh, having some tremendous disruption going along with that as well. Sure. I mean, for if our economy is based on the idea that we're going to continuously consume our consumption is going to grow, if you have a declining population your consumption isn't going to grow. And it's not just that the, the, the population is eventually going to decline, it's that it's aging rapidly as well. And because it's aging right. rapidly, old people don't buy and consume the way that young people do. So we're going to have to adjust our views of what growth is going to look like in the future. But, you know, uh, I think that my favorite thing that's happened in this book, because it's been quite a journey, was the first review I read of it came from an interest group that, uh, uh, that uh, is um, very concerned about the future population. And the start of the the start of the interview, the first uh, or the start of the review, the first two sentences were, um, "We haven't read this book, but we know we disagree with it." And that's that's kind of the reaction that you yeah. get from a lot of people yeah. uh, is that uh, you know science and facts only work when they support your political position. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm coming to the conclusion of, Roy, is that what tends to happen these days is we say we need to bring more science to politics. It's not that we make politics more scientific; we just make science more political. That is so well said, and and you're right. If uh, if if you don't agree with me, I'm going to reject everything you're going to say, regardless of how well you back it up, regardless of the evidence you bring to the table. I'm just going to say no. 
Yeah, and that's that's what I get from people who are on the other side. And then, you know, you start getting actually into the details and the numbers, and you start going through them, and then their position is, well, all you're doing is providing ammunition to people who are climate change deniers. And, and don't you understand that by, ha- you know, presenting this information this way that you're, you're going to stop this, uh, you know, um, uh, progress that we could potentially make? So you shouldn't be saying, and it's like, what are you talking about? Or, is this science or is it not? And, and you know the facts are the facts. I mean, you can make you can make up your own opinion, but you know we we, we all need to share the facts because they are what they are. What's uh, what's the most challenged or rejected fact that you cite? Oh, it's that uh, the global birth rate is out of control. So when you when you take a look at it, what you find is that almost all of the population growth that's taking place in the world today is not because kid new kids or kids are being born. It's because old people older people are living longer. So. The reason that population continues to grow and will continue to grow to the mid-century is because uh, we're we're very good these days at keeping people alive. What we're really bad at is making new kids. Yeah. And you know the the belief is that, for example, the Indian population is completely out of control and birth rate is huge. No, it's not. It's two point one replacement level. China's the largest country in the world is at one point five, and that's the official statistics. I've seen other demographers that have it as low as one point two. So if you know thirty five, thirty six percent of the world's population is in those two countries, how are we ever going to get to eleven point two billion? And I'll just throw another number at you, Roy. Uh, the UN just adjusted down in the last two months its population estimates by three hundred million. Uh, which is the population the same size as the United States. Right. Wow. I mean, that's huge. Empty Planet, the shock of global population decline. Empty Planet, the shock of global population decline by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson. I have 20 seconds for uh, just a, a th- quick thought from you about where we stand with this federal election. What, what, what What's really on your mind? It's close. It's very close. And, you know, the real big question right now for me is turnout. Uh, notoriously hard for pollsters to predict. And what we know is that conservatives, older voters, more habitual voters, more interested in this campaign, more likely to turn out. And the uh, the younger voters that put the liberals over the uh, over the uh, the line last time around, definitely not as interested. So, uh, you know, trying to estimate what the impact of that is going to be is, is, our, uh, is our biggest problem. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for the books. Well, Roy, we're going to keep them rolling along, and thank you very much for your support on this. All right. Daryl Bricker, and uh, the books are, again, Empty Planet and The Big Shift. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 